0: Hi there, and welcome to the Talking Money podcast. My name is Glenn Fisher. I'm the publisher of Agora Financial here in the UK, and I'll be your host. Each week, I'll be inviting our editors and various guests from outside the company to come in and discuss the hot topics of the day. Without further ado, let's get to this week's episode. Hello and welcome to this week's episode of the Talking Money Podcast. My name is Peter Cranenbrook and I'm joined by the editor of uh, the Bi- Biotech Alert, Tom Bulford. Tom has been on the Talking Money Podcast before, but uh, for those of you not yet quite familiar with Tom's work, I'll give you a short introduction. Tom's an investor who uh, turned to journalism about 15 years ago, uh, he spent a decade writing about penny shares. But in more recent years, he's immersed himself in the world of biotechnology. Agora Financial has recently published Tom's first book, which is called The Future of Investing How Biotechnology Could Transform Your Portfolio. Welcome, Tom. Um, let's talk about your book first, because I think it'll be a good place to start. Um, I've read a book myself and I think it's a very helpful guide for non-experts especially to to understand the basics of what is going on in uh, the biotech sector. Tom, um, could you explain why you decided to write a book about biotech for non-experts, for the non initiated and um, why did you think that book needed to be written?
1: Well, um, there were more than one reason, really. I mean, one of them was a simple sort of practical point that um, my newsletter is now in its fifth year, and I'm conscious of the fact that anybody who signs up for it today and starts reading it hasn't read the previous 200-and-something issues, and so I wanted to write something that they could quickly read and kind of get up to speed on the subject. But, I mean, more broadly... um, You know, I was working in the city as an investment manager in about the year 2000 when the whole dot-com boom sort of emerged and people started using this terminology that we'd never heard before and, you know, words like megabytes and downloading and things and we didn't really understand what it was. And, you know, it's easy now to forget how ignorant we all were about this stuff you know, just 15 years ago, which isn't all that long. And I think now, in biotechnology, we're increasingly seeing references to things like regenerative medicine and stem cells and genetics and DNA. And I'm not sure, you know, how much, you know, the average man in the street really understands what's being talked about. And um, there is a real... Revolution going on in biotechnology now, just as there was in digital technology those years ago. And, um, you know, I think that it, it, it people, you know, can benefit from just understanding the basics of, of what people are talking about.
0: Um, yeah, it's interesting you mentioned that because there's, there's so many, uh, there's a lot of terminology like DNA that we use all the time um, when maybe people don't exactly know what those words mean, but they somehow still uh, uh, become part of, of everyday use. Mm. Um, what, what I find interesting about biotechnology uh, right now, because you say there's a revolution going on, um, what I was thinking, because, um, well, I know biotech is much more than human health and medicine, but um, just taking that part of it for a moment, that is uh, I mean, it's basically been a fascination for for people, I think, since the start of time. Like, they've uh, always tried to find ways to prolong life, I guess.
1: Mm-hmm. So
0: why right now we you see is it, is it a revolution? Is that really the, the technology part of it?
1: Um, well, you know, I would describe what's going on now as being like, you know, the first time we've been able to open a bonnet and really look at the engine of the car. I mean, medicine in the past has, has always, you know, looked at symptoms and then people have made educated guesses about what might be going on within the body. What we are able to do now is to go right down into each of the, I think it's something like 30 trillion cells in your body, and look at each of the three billion base pairs of DNA within each of those cells, it sounds miraculous. It still seems miraculous to me sometimes, but that is what we can now do. So we can get right down to the very detailed workings of the human body within the cell and try and sort of uh, you, you know, really, genuinely, for the first time, understand what's going on and why we get ill. Um, I mean, it is exceptionally complicated, and I'm not going to pretend that it's easy. But we have um, we, we we have yeah, we're able to do things now that we're never able that we've never able, been able to do before. And of course, once you start. Um, Well, once you've opened the bonnet and you can look at all the bits and pieces underneath, then you can start working out how you might alter those bits and pieces to, you know, make the car go faster or or last longer or whatever. And again, that's what we are now seeing. And, and, uh, you know, particularly in an area like cancer, um, you know, we're seeing some real progress made because at last for the first time we're really understanding what is causing the cancer in the first place.
0: Um, yeah, I thought of an article it's um, really interesting stuff and, and uh, hopefully it will help um, progress in, in the sector. Obviously I think I think I saw in one of your newsletters that um, that your kids might not, uh, like the generation of your children, uh, might not uh, actually worry about cancer as much as anymore, because you really have faith in, in the progress that the sector is, is currently uh, showing. Is that correct? Um, or is that just a bit too...
1: Uh, well, uh, I mean, the... the, the Cancer is the um, leading target for sort of modern day medical research, you know, partly because it is a big killer, but also because it is seen as a a genetic disease. In other words, it's caused at the cellular level when... uh, The the DNA within the cell starts sending out the wrong messages, or those messages are misinterpreted in some way. So, um, what we also realize about cancer is that it's not, uh, um, you know, we can't, we can't, no, we can no longer distinguish it by saying you have lung cancer or breast cancer or prostate cancer. Cancer is cancer and within prostate cancer there are all sorts of different types of prostate cancer and this is why some people will uh, respond well to certain drugs and other people won't and so that leads us now down to the path of, of personalized medicine where we have to analyze people's cancer far more closely and by the way it changes over time and then we have to give them an appropriate drug or combination of drugs and that is what the industry is now working on and you know progress is being made in the fight against cancer and i've no doubt that it will continue but i wouldn't go so far as to say that we'll eliminate cancer Um, but it it may well be possible to at least you know manage it as as a chronic disease that you have to live with but it won't necessarily kill you
0: uh,
1: yeah definitely um
0: Okay, moving on um, I, I spotted an article on the BBCs homepage this week um, it was about the ice bucket challenge that went viral and that in 2014 and so many people reported themselves pouring ice cold water over themselves and posting it on the internet um, I think most people just want to go in front of their friends but a lot of famous people also got involved and uh, it ended up raising a lot of money uh, and awareness for ALS research I <coughs> That, that article uh, said that this Ice Coffee Challenge has, has funded uh, an important gene discovery in ALS research. And um, Tom, you spoke at the Proactive Investor Forum in London recently. And, and one of the things you mentioned was that biotech has hit the mainstream, so to speak. And I had to think about that when I saw the article. Um, could you say there's definitely been like, a sharp increase in coverage of the biotech sector in the press? Or, or well, could be that I just start noticing more myself,
1: and I to pay you more attention. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, it, it, that's the same question I ask myself. But no, I mean, I genuinely do think that there is a lot more. Uh, there, there do seem to be a lot more news articles about stuff that I would describe as biotechnology. I mean, w- 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 one of the things that this arises from is that. People are are sequencing genomes all over the world, whether it's, you know, wheat or um, an avocado or a human being or a dog or a rabbit or whatever. The full genome, in other words, their entire sequence of DNA, is now being um, recorded and analyzed And from that, people are saying that people with a certain genetic variant, for example, get red hair. Now, these are what are called association studies. So all they say is there is a correlation between people with red hair and people with this genetic variant. But that's not necessarily telling you that there is causality. In other words... It's too simplistic to say that if you've got this gene, you will necessarily get red hair. So a lot of the stories you read in the press saying, oh, we found a gene that makes people fat or makes people intelligent or whatever. You've got to take, you've got to take them um, rather carefully. They make good headlines, but it's a bit more complicated than that. But, you know, as I said, you know, we've now got the technology to analyze genomes and people all over the world now, particularly in China, which is probably the biggest of the lot, are, you know, furiously analyzing genomes and producing enormous amounts of genetic data and using supercomputers to analyze this data and trying to come up with clues as to why living things are as they are, you know. And from there, as I said earlier, you can then try and work out how you might alter them. So, inevitably, you know, that does produce a lot of media stories.
0: Um, yeah, imagine saying, oh, we found the cure to people becoming bald or fat. Well, that, that wouldn't make a good line, wouldn't it? But,
1: um... <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, uh, there are people, you know, who think that it's going to be capable, it's going to be able to, we're going to be able to live forever. But um, that's not in not in my lifetime. Well,
0: I'm, I'm very sceptical about that in me and anyone. So yeah, so.
1: but I am. I might just mention at this point that I, I'm just I've just finished reading a, a very very good book called The End of Sex, and it's all about how it's going to be possible to produce babies without having to go through the sort of agonies of jumping into bed with somebody and essentially you, you, you produce uh, sperm and egg cells from stem cells and you then mix them in a test tube and you put them into you know a womb and so and basically you know all the technology is pretty much there already and um The author of this book um, thinks that this is, you know, this will become quite common practice within the next 20 to 40 years. So it's, you know, some of these things you read, which seem rather sort of science fiction, you know, maybe they're a little bit closer than we think. I
0: mean, that's basically the plot of Brave New World, isn't
1: it? Yes, exactly.
0: That was a fiction book, so...
1: Um, well, we thought it was fiction. <laughs>
0: well, at, at the time it was. But, it was, But yeah, yes. it doesn't mean that it can't become a reality. I mean, A lot of people would say that all of this, uh, dystopian world is becoming reality as well. So um, fiction turns to reality sometimes. Yes. <laughs> Although I would not, um, I don't think a lot of people would agree that um, procreating the natural way is agony. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not sure <laughs> <laughs> I'm not sure if, if that will become a thing, but, but it's good to have the option, I guess. Um, yes. Um, I also got, Well, you say that basically this, this is going on all over the world, like in China, and, and that's, I guess that's the beauty of science, that, that people from all kinds of backgrounds anywhere in the world can work on the same, different problem. Well, um, in, in that sense, um, well, I also remember an audience uh, question. From, uh, from that investor forum I mentioned earlier uh, it was about the impact that Brexit is is likely to have in British science and in your previous podcast with Glenn Fisher um, it was mentioned that the UK is particularly important for the industry. I mean Britain has a good reputation for, for scientific research and, and when it comes to biotech people even speak of the Golden Triangle, of Oxford, Cambridge, London so um, Given that it's uh, like research is taking place all over the world, and what are your thoughts on, on the impact Brexit could have on, on British science and, and the biotech industry? I mean, to what extent uh, do they rely on EU grants and foreign students and academics moving to the UK?
1: Yeah, um, well, there are three things which are really exercising people's minds. One of them is the matter of EU. Research grant. So, I mean, clearly, if somebody is uh, giving a grant for EU research and you're no longer in the EU, then you know you can't um, uh, get, get that funding. I think, off the top of my head, I mean, there's a figure something like the UK contributes sort of three and a half billion or something towards. Research funding but receives five billion. So, if you, you know, possibly the UK could end up being a loser. The second point is about um, freedom of movement. And I did speak to the boss of one biotech firm who says that at the moment they only employ people who are EU. Um, residents because they can come and work here freely and the company doesn't have to go through the business of getting you know, work permits. Um, and so uh, that, that is a concern. Um, and the other one is the fact that at the moment, if a company has a new drug, if it is approved in any European country, it will then automatically um, uh, be approved a- across the whole of the EU so it's you know if if there's an absolute split, then the EU will have to approve drugs and the UK will have to approve those drugs separately. And as as it, I mean, as things stand at the moment, neither the EU on its own nor the UK has anything like the capacity to do that. So I think that you know common sense might sort of prevail. Ultimately, we'll see. But I mean, the big picture, I think, is that. Um, the UK is very strong in science I, I, I can't honestly see the universities losing their status particularly as a result of Brexit um, I think that uh, the UK has an advantage of, of, of the fact that we have the English language I think people tend to overlook that and um, uh, and you know, also with so uh, I, I'm you know I'm fairly optimistic that we won't suffer too much. But um, there's a bit of a hiatus at the moment. That's for certain. Do
0: you think that um, that business would go on as usual? I mean, British universities would continue um, hiring or uh, inviting. EU Nationals, for example, to um, to contribute to their, to their schools, um, even if they you know, now have procedures to deal with and it's not as easy, but, but they will seek to keep on doing that? Or you think, well, since it doesn't matter anymore, we might as well more focus on US or anywhere else, but Asian um, researchers or that
1: really <laughs> Well, I mean, you know, a lot of companies come to this country because they want to set up an office in a business park somewhere near Oxford or Cambridge because they can then tap into the, you know, the creative ideas and breakthroughs and so on that come out of the university. So it may well be in future that the universities will have slightly less students from the EU and rather more from, you know, Asia, for example, but that doesn't necessarily mean that the output of the universities will, will change um, uh, and so you know I think well I, I, I mean I, this is slightly outside my realm but I, I, I'm not too pessimistic really at all about the UK's um, status in science based industries okay so
0: well, that's good to hear um, I'm not sure if you, Bob, uh, are familiar with what's um, going on in Switzerland, um, and if it's at all uh, comparable to the, the British uh, case. And if you look at Switzerland, they, they have a series. They're not in the EU. They have a series of bilateral agreements with the EU, um, but they breached those agreements when they voted the strict immigration in 2014 referendum. Um, I was considered not in tune with the freedom of movement that is so important to the EU and to the single market. Um, I think since then, uh, it's sort of been excluded from, from most of the EU's Horizon 2020 science program. Mm. So I'm not sure if, if, if those are risks, I mean, is Britain at the risk of having similar problems? or I, I'm not sure if you're familiar with that. Mm-hmm.
1: Um, Well, it could well be. I mean, as I said earlier, you know, if there are EU programs, whether it's, I mean, EU Horizons probably have some sort of funding from somewhere. I mean, if you're not in the EU, you can't participate in these sort of EU-wide initiatives. Um, And so, as I said earlier, I think there is some concern about that.
0: also established that advice like, isn't just about medicine and human health, but it's also about bars and animals, um, and you mentioned in you, your newsletter that the first genetically modified animals has been approved of consumption, I think it was a salmon. Um,
1: yes, it was.
0: Yeah. <coughs> correct. Um, but much more work being has been done in that area like <coughs> you know, genetically modified crops. Um, and taking into account that the world's population is still rising, there will be many more mouths in the future. Uh, producing enough food could become a major challenge. And what role do you see for genetic modification uh, to deal with this problem?
1: Well, I think it's probably the the single, um, you know, best hope of meeting the world's appetite. Um, you know, as everybody knows, there's a finite amount of land and water. Um, And we've we've gone about as far as we can go in terms of, you know, piling fertilizer on on the land. Um, You know, GM crops have been around for, what is it, 30 years. They're, They're now grown in about 30 countries around the world. The acreage has been going up you know pretty much year on year, and there is no evidence that eating um, gm produced food that, that, that does any harm to human health and believe me, lots of people have tried to prove that it is harmful, but um you know scientists are pretty much unanimous that That it's not harmful, and and I think that the opposition to GM crops is is weakening. You know, purely because the evidence is on the side of GM crops. Um, But uh, it's now possible to, um, I mean, conventional plant breeding. You know, where where you simply cross one plant with another, it takes you in certain directions, but it uh, and it may well take you in the directions you want to get to in terms of producing hardier crops or, or tomato plants which produce more tomatoes. But it just takes an awfully long time. GM is a kind of shortcut, and you know people see it as sort of artificial and playing with nature. But there are now actually methods where. You can accelerate conventional breeding um, using genetic markers to sort of help you on your way. This is something called marker-assisted breeding. So the, um, the, the the sort of dividing line between you know what's seen as GM and what's seen as natural is rather blurring now. In, in any case, so I think that the production of plants and for that matter animals that have uh, particular features that we want in other words they're hardier or they're more productive or whatever you know I see that not just continuing but I see it accelerating because at at present the the vast majority of GM crops are um, cotton soya and maize and they're grown principally in North and South America um, but in future I think we're going to see crops grown you know, in more countries around the world um, possibly you know, now that the UK is out of Brexit it is out of Europe you know, we might now grow them in this country even if the EU remains opposed but what you're also going to see is a, a, a lot more engineering of other types of food crop um, and this goes back to what i was saying earlier about the amount of genetic sequencing that is going on you know of walnuts and the avocados and as i said once you've once you've sort of got the blueprint the genetic blueprint you can then start working out ways of of altering the, the genes of your particular plant uh you know to, to produce the ends that you desire um so i, I think that in terms of Genetically engineered or genetically altered plants, you they were at the beginning really of this story.
0: Yeah, I, I agree. Like, if um, skeptics now end up losing the debate, then surely, and like there's still no evidence that it's harmful to, to humans, then surely their production will, will increase. Um, and it's also a fair point, I think, we as as people, as humans, we've been intervening so much in the natural world um, that that is a weird kind of objection to still have.
1: Um, well, I think you know the the one thing which is quite difficult is that uh, if if I mean pl- plants of a similar species will will naturally breed with each other, and, and you can speed up that process, but there's one experiment in which a plant called the camelina plant has been genetically engineered to produce basically fish oil and that's been done by by engineering the gene from a fish into a plant and that is obviously not something that would happen naturally um, so that is a, a trickier sort of ethical problem I think
0: mm-hmm. wouldn't that, what specially can well uh that counts more for sort of people and, and animals than plants so, um, I
1: mean, um, you mean in terms of the ethics Yes, exactly. well I think you know there are some people who, who simply uh, okay. don't believe we should be in, in interfering in you know the natural world and they have religious re- reasons for that um, so I think it's, it's going to remain contentious there's no doubt about it but I mean at the end of the day I think that
0: I mean, vaccines are still contentious in some circles.
1: But. Yeah, but I mean, you know, if you're hungry, you're not going to be too um, particular, are you? No, I don't. Reality. Um,
0: just, uh, just so I know exactly what's. Um, you know, just have an idea. How, how long have humans, have people, been consuming uh, genetically modified crops? Like, I just want to know how many years of data there is to prove that it doesn't uh, harm.
1: Well, the first genetically modified crop that was approved, I think I'm right in saying, was a type of tomato. And again, I think I'm right in saying that was in about 1970. That's so, that's you know, bad. we're, yeah, sort of 40 years worth now.
0: Well, if, if nothing's happened since then, then I'm sure it's fine.
1: <laughs> and, you know, and it's complicated because. I said that soya is one of the main crops that is genetically modified, and soya is basically used as an animal feed, and although the EU um, won't allow uh, genetically modified crops to be grown in Europe, it's quite happy to import soya that is then fed into animals, and because genes, you know, can pass from one thing to another, um, you know, it, it all becomes quite, quite complicated.
0: So, it's not happy about us consuming it directly yet, but indirectly, it's Exactly, not, exactly. Not the right. mm-hmm. um, but the last thing I'd like to ask you, Tom, is um, related to something I read in this week's issue I think, um, with the Um It's really printing of body parts. Right, um, well, it's a weird sentence. Um, now, when I first read that, um, I thought you were talking about something very futuristic. Maybe you picked it up in uh, in some kind of of novel fantasizing about what the future might bring. But I read they're already able to print human ears, um, and organs are obviously uh, much trickier, but once they affect that part, it can help overcome donor shortage. Um, So I guess what I'd like to know is, Whether 3D printing of body parts is still in its early development stages, or whether something we might see in the not so distant
1: future. Um, Well, I mean, a a big area of interest in biotechnology is what's called regenerative medicine, which which is where you are basically trying to replace body parts that have uh, that are either malfunctioning or they've or they're worn out and I mean, cell therapy, which is where you're injecting people with sort of fresh cells, that is a type of regenerative medicine. Where where you're talking about, um, you know, larger structures, the the distinction is between things like ears and um, hip joints, which um, are... Well, let's let's put it this way. You can live without them, whereas something like a heart or a kidney or a liver is far more sort of integrated into the body and it needs a blood supply and it needs to sort of be connected up to the nerve system. And these things are very, very, you know, very, very complicated. Um, You know, people are now... Printing three dimensional structures using living cells. And um, uh, for example, they've done a 3D printing of, uh, I think it's liver tissue, just a little tiny bit, the size of a poster stamp. But, But against that, you can then test drugs against what is effectively human liver tissue. Um, so that's a kind of early um, breakthrough in, in this respect um, I mean 3d printing enables you to predict to predict to, 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 to print structures that would otherwise be very difficult to do um, I think 3d printing of you know the sort of major organs of the body is, is quite a long way off but um, Regenerative medicine in itself is very interesting and very promising. And a lot of it, um, well, stems from stem cells because we we are now able to create stem cells from adult cells. And we now know that stem cells have a way of um, forming um, uh, they They sort of seem to know what they should do, so if you put stem cells into somebody's brain, they will automatically turn into uh, brain cells and they will self assemble into you know certain structures um, so uh, regenerative medicine is a very interesting exciting area 3 d printing is kind of rather on the sort of futuristic margin of that but um uh, there's some quite interesting stuff going on, yeah. that
0: does sound very interesting. So if I understand you correctly, um, would 3D printing potentially then uh, become a means of, of uh, testing uh, medicine or anything on humans without the moral objections? Because...
1: Um, well, the, the biggest issue really is that um, when drugs are tested, they're, they're tested on animals, you know basically mice normally, and everybody knows that that mice are not particularly good um, uh, you know they're, they're not like humans, so lots of drugs will perform perfectly well when tested on mice, but they won't perform well on humans so if you can test drugs on human tissue rather than animal tissue, you know it should help you. To, to sort out w- whether drugs are, w- are working or not you know more accurately and, and at, an, at an earlier stage
0: it does all sound very exciting and promising and uh, and understand it's a long way off but um, just that we're already able to do these kind of things and we're talking about it as uh, become a reality is already I think a, quite a big leap from I don't know a 40, 50
1: years ago? um... Well, things happen so quickly, don't they? I mean, it's... You know, as I said, you know, 15 years ago, uh, you know, hardly any of us had an iPhone. I mean, I was only barely sort of getting used to a PC back then. And um, and when you get a real global effort uh, in a certain technology which is what you're seeing at the moment with biotechnology, it's surprising how quickly things can happen. And bear in mind that, um, you know, one thing about biotechnology is that people are quite collaborative. I think that, um, you know, academics don't have the attitude that, we found something that now we must keep it to ourselves and keep it a secret so we can make money out of it. There's a lot of collaboration within biotechnology. I mean, scientists spend their whole time going off to conferences to meet other scientists. And there's a lot of open source information now, which is being put up online. So researchers from all over the world can go into various genetic databases and, and make their own contribution. So, um, yeah, it's exciting. and I think things, you know, things will happen quickly. I
0: think that's a nice uh, note to end, that we can achieve more through collaboration than just trying to work out things for ourselves. And thanks uh, very much, Tom, for this. Um, enjoy talking. Uh, awesome. and learning about uh, biotech and I'll uh, keep reading your uh, biotech newsletter. To, yes. To keep an eye on oh. what things are still... Uh, going on and going to happen
1: in the future yes well I hope other people will read it also because you know my main purpose is to try and sort of simplify biotechnology and explain to people what's going on in you know without sort of using all the jargon um, anyway thanks very much and have a nice weekend everybody out there thanks Tom okay cheerio